0: About almost two years ago now, a group of us, took an, a group of us, about 15 people, went on an expedition to the Sierras. And we, we had uh, two things in common. One was a love of the mountains and the Sierras in particular. And the other was the belief that something was missing from the mountains. Now in the Sierras, virtually every peak is named after someone famous. Famous explorers, famous scientists, famous naturalists. But none was named after arguably one of the greatest American naturalists of the last three centuries, Henry Thoreau. Mm -hmm. So we went up to rectify that oversight. And we found an unnamed peak, and we hiked up, and we named it. Henry David Thoreau Peak, And then we came down and we partied for two days. (laughs) And at the party, different people shared readings of Thoreau that were meaningful to them. They shared original work. Poets read poetry. We had artists who showed their art. Photographers showed their photography. And now all that stuff that came out in that that day-long celebration is being collected in in a book that is coming out next year, which is very exciting. And I am going to read an excerpt from an essay I wrote for that book. And the essay is called, Thoreau's Microscope. (coughs) In the Sierras, there are mountains named for Muir, Mendel, Darwin, and Emerson. Thoreau was no less a giant of thought, he was no less a giant in his powers of description and the beauty of his language. He was no less a giant in the world of nature and science. He had the obsessive mind and habits of a scientist. He was detailed in his observations and punctilious in writing them down. He carried a pencil and diary on his daily walks, a spyglass for looking at birds, a book to press plants, and along with a growing number of geologists, botanists, and biologists, a field microscope. In the early 1800s, any naturalist worth his salt carried a field microscope. 150 years prior to that, before Thoreau was looking, was using his to look at tree rings, pond scum, and mushroom caps, Antony von Lievenhul, was looking through his radically new one by two inch flattened black brass microscope and seeing a little swimming thing he called an animalcule. It was the first recorded glimpse of microscopic animal life. Leuvenhoek's microscope was a revolution in the age old art of microscopy and optics. Able to magnify things an astounding 300 times, and people flocked from all over, hoping to go home with one. Scientists begged for its secret, which lay in the lens barely bigger than the head of a pin, and which Leeuwenhoek steadfastly refused to reveal. He was a scientist, yes, but first and foremost he was a merchant and a businessman with a businessman's understanding of the particular power of proprietary information. (laughs) Had he lived 150 years earlier in Holland, Thoreau would certainly have known (laughs) Lievenhuk. He probably would have liked him. He definitely would have admired his inventiveness and his industry. He would have loved to score one of his scopes but who would have hated the secrecy surrounding it. Secrecy is anathema to the true scientist. Science and its practitioners have a higher purpose than profit. Innovation requires perspiration, sure, but inspiration, too. And how can you put a number to something that is born of and owes its value to the human spirit? You can't, and it's wrong to try. Freedom of thought carries a social responsibility, especially when that thought leads to something of value. You've discovered a new way to see, a way that not only magnifies, not only deepens, but revolutionizes what we know of life. Uncool to keep it to yourself. (laughs) Why be stingy when nature is not? Thoreau is the classic case of the poet-scientist, the ardent, emotive, wool-gathering, free-thinking, and opinionated artist trapped in the body of a sober, level-headed, and dispassionate rationalist, and vice versa. I say trapped, but it's more a cohabitation, each half infiltrating, illuminating, and regularly delighting the other. When he's not poor beyond words and insecure because of it, the poet-scientist is happy as a clam, because he knows he sees things as they truly are, as much as humanly possible. Sight, true sight, brings a kind of ecstasy. The poet-scientist is that lucky man or woman who gets to experience the ecstasy of science, which is the ecstasy of everything in its place, of order, logic, and reason, as well as the ecstasy of poetry, of art, which is the ecstasy of plunging into the unknown and being swept away, the ecstasy of surrender. Late in his life, Thoreau had this to say about microscopes. Science is inhuman. Things seen with a microscope begin to be insignificant. So described, they are as monstrous as if they should be magnified a thousand diameters. With our prime instruments, we disturb the balance and harmony of nature. Science is inhuman, perfect science, that is, if there is such a thing. Inhuman in the sense of unfeeling, impersonal, amoral, and unprejudiced. With our instruments, we do pry. With or without instruments, we humans are disturbers par excellence. Yet here we are. And there Thoreau was, after a lifetime of looking, and looking closer, saying it was time to stop. He died three years later, almost to the day of tuberculosis. The disease was known as consumption then, for the way it literally consumed a person's vitality and life. One in seven Europeans died of it. The disease was felt by many to be hereditary. Twenty years after Thoreau's death, Robert Koch proved that it was not. Using a brand new staining technique and state-of-the-art microscope, Koch identified the causative agent, which he named Mycobacterium tuberculosis. It would be some time before an effective treatment existed, but Koch's discovery was critical in paving the way. Imagine Thoreau living a mere twenty years longer, the news of Koch's discovery spread in its day like wildfire, he most certainly would have known of it. How would he have felt then of the insignificant things seen under the microscope? For a man of nature in the natural world where there was nothing that didn't spark his interest, and little that he didn't document scrupulously year after year to the tune of 3,000 journal pages. Thoreau was remarkably reticent when it came to his own health. He rarely mentions it, and never at length, not the length you'd expect of a man of science. Human health and disease had as much to teach him about the laws of nature, about balance, nourishment, depletion, and decay, as the woods he so loved. But it's as if he were deaf to them, or mostly deaf. He does refer to his health from time to time typically in glancing terms. From his journal, 1855, no doubt the healthiest man in the world is preventing from doing what he would like by sickness. His journal again, 1859, I am inclined to think of late that as much depends on the state of the bowels as of the stars. And in 1861, I have been sick so long that I have almost forgotten what it is to be well, yet I feel that it all respects only my envelope. Many people are private when it comes to their health. They prefer not to prate about their woes and parade their infirmities. Still, from a man devoted obsessively to the closely observed life, he gives us precious little. We never read, for example, how the distance he was able to walk diminished steadily as consumption destroyed his lungs. We never read how tired he was. He never tells us the number of days he was feverish, and when the fever was accompanied by a shaking, chill, and drenching sweat. (laughs) He never talked about how it felt to cough his guts out. And when he wasn't coughing, how it felt to be starved for air. How, beyond being continually short of breath, he was starved for energy, including, and most killingly, the energy to form coherent, original thought. He never mentioned how it felt to have his life eaten away, to be consumed, parasitized as it were, from the inside out. How it called to mind a particular parasitic wasp, which itself called to mind an historic perhaps mythic event, which he read in Virgil or Ovid. He never talked about any of this, nor the fact that his own sister died of the same disease at the age of 36. Suddenly, we see a man renowned for being fearlessly outspoken in a different light, restrained, discreet, A New Englander, where these qualities are as bred in the bone among the educated and genteel as they are wondered at and found to be of little use by those of a more uninhibited confessional nature, such as Walt Whitman, who knew Thoreau and in so many other respects was like him. It's no sin to be restrained. It's no sin to be discreet. In the right hands, at the right time, these can be virtues, if not gifts. Which is only to say that self-exposure, particularly of the most intimate, gruesome, physical details of one's own body and health, as riveting and irresistible as it may sound, is not everyone's cup of tea. (laughs) January 15, 2013. Today I had tears in my eyes. The feeling hits me every so often out of nowhere. What triggered it today? Walking alone in the cold winter morning to the hospital for my pre-op blood draw. The alone part. We all are, but still. It was cold and I was lonely. January 16th, sitting in exam room where I've spent thousands upon thousands of hours as MD. Comfortable, familiar. One of Netter's fine illustrations on the wall, this one of the cardiac anatomy. Drawing of heart transected and transverse and coronal planes. Normally I love this stuff, and I love it now. But thinking about getting cut up myself, it also gives me the creeps. January 3rd, two weeks earlier, CT scan today. Afterwards, finagle my way into the reading room. Meet the radiologist, like me, loves his job. More than happy to talk about the study. Doctor to doctor, no holds barred. Just the facts. I love it. My first reaction on seeing the mass. How beautiful. It grows along the path of the lung, and the lung is beautiful. It's a tree, literally a tree of breath, which means it's a tree of life. All nature is beautiful. January 15th. This ability I have that most doctors have, to view things with a detached clinical eye, difficult things like pain, suffering, and illness. Hilary Mantel in her novel Wolf Hall has this to say, There are some strange, cold people in the world. It is priests, I think, training themselves out of natural feeling. They mean it for the best, of course. There are some strange, cold people in the world but do not mistake distance for coldness. Some of us use distance because we run too hot, because without it our feelings would overwhelm us. And yes, it does require training. Any craft to be of use requires discipline. Discipline is what allows me the great pleasure of having a candid conversation with my surgeon when we discuss basically how he's going to stab me in the chest and tear my lung out. January 17, the day before surgery. Spirit's good. Try not to think of sharp pointed objects puncturing my chest. Instead, think of pressing the button of the patient-controlled post-op dilaudid drip. (laughs) Swimming in a sea of narcotics. I'm very curious about this. Lots of hugs from my wife. The sweetness just overflows. I feel like I'm living in a state of grace long conversation with my daughter. Like me, a concrete thinker. Couldn't quite visualize what the surgery entails and needed to, so I pulled out my old anatomy text. Big, thick book with beautiful, detailed drawings. The one of the lung particularly good. Each lobe clearly marked and color-coded. The surgery textbook also useful. Explaining is a way of containing. She's of the opinion that, ultimately, We have no control over our fate. Ultimately, I'd have to agree, but short of ultimately, I'd say my fate is in the hands of the man who's going to cut me open. (laughs) More tears after a call from my sister. We say the things we usually don't. Why the tears? Because the feelings of love and attachment are so old and primitive and sacred that it seems as if we're breaking an oath to speak of them. An unspoken oath between sister and brother, forgotten over the years of living our separate lives, not to desert one another. January 21, post-op day three. Chest tubes in. Three of them dangling down like extra appendages. Tube in penis. Tubes in arms. Tubes everywhere except nose now out. Small apical pneumo detected on chest X-ray. January 23. You'd think every moment would be precious. If cancer is good for anything, you'd think it would be good for this. Here's an incomplete list of the good. One, I've seen and talked to lots of friends. Some I would have in the normal course of events. Others I might not have for years. Two, I've learned how a lung is taken out. It's a marvel of science, a marvel of science, combining careful attention to detail, deafness, and brute force as so much of surgery does. Three, I've learned this about myself, that I'm not afraid of death in the way I thought I might be, that if I do die from this, I won't kick and curse. I'll be at peace for what I've accomplished. Will I be at peace for who I've been, which is different? I can't answer that yet. Maybe that's another good from cancer. I can work on this. January 24th. My wife this morning says, on a different topic entirely, it's good to take action, even if it's a small action. I heartily agree. Taking action seems tantamount to being alive. Making a decision and following it through is one form of action. Relinquishing control, surrendering to what may be, is another. February 1. My surgeon called yesterday with the pathology results. The good news, the lymph nodes are clear. The bad, the cancer is bigger than originally thought. Also, there are micro of cancer at the staple line where the lung was taken out, meaning there isn't a clear margin between cancer and normal tissue, meaning it's likely there's cancer <coughs> still inside. These selections are from a journal I kept after being diagnosed with lung cancer. This was before I was thinking about Thoreau, which turned out to be the doorway into talking about my illness. The journal runs to many thousands of words. Strangely, missing entirely from it is an extraordinary encounter I had after my first surgery with a pulmonary pathologist at the university where I worked, a young, energetic, widely respected expert in the field of lung cancer. Extraordinary for how generous he was How quick to say yes when I asked if he'd look at my slides and offer his opinion. Extraordinary for how small his office was, despite his standing. How cluttered with books and journals and specimen slides. How little the clutter mattered to him, and how reassuring this was to me. Extraordinary for how friendly he was, and simultaneously focused on the business at hand, which were the slides I'd brought which he unpacked and slid into place on the staging platform with practice, agility, and grace. Extraordinary for the tingle I felt sitting opposite him and peering into the microscope, a teaching microscope with two sets of eyepieces. How effortlessly I fell into the role of objective observer. This stained two-dimensional slice of the natural world, the beauty of it, the intelligent design, the efficiency, made my heart race. I was catapulted back 40 years to my days as a medical student, looking at slides under the microscope, slides of normal and abnormal tissue, normal and abnormal cells, slides of health and disease. In those days, there were two main obstacles to a long life, cancer and heart disease. The heart could be treated, cancer not so much. Both were enemies, but cancer was the enemy, and the worst possible kind of enemy. Irrational, implacable, and inhuman. An alien presence to wake our worst nightmares and most deep-seated fears. Under the microscope, a cancer cell looks different from a normal cell. Its nucleus is dark and fat, effacing all but the thinnest rim of normalcy a dark, fat, evil eye, sinister and malignant. As a student, I've developed a reflex, visceral reaction of horror and antipathy on seeing it. Forty years later, I felt it again. My stomach clenched, the breath caught in my chest as though it were yesterday. How extraordinary, I thought, the persistence of reflexive behavior. How extraordinary the strength of the xenophobic response and how extraordinarily quickly these dissipated as the scientist in me, the lover of knowledge and of nature, took over and shock and fear gave way to awe. I understood what I hadn't forty years before, what no one had. Cancer is not alien. It's not other. It's our own cells gone awry. And as such, it's a window into who we are, a deep, deep window into the infinitely complex infinitely precise, exquisitely balanced, back and all of life. Cancer teaches us how cells divide and what makes them stop dividing, or in cancer cells, or in cancer's case, not. How one cell sperm and egg becomes trillions of cells. How cells differentiate into other cells. How from a single, lumpy, homogeneous-ish mass we sprout fingers, brains, and blood. It teaches us how we grow, and in nature, growth is life. Having cancer is no picnic, but thinking about cancer is about as good as it gets. Its dark, fat eye may presage nasty things to come, but it isn't evil. It's beautiful, miraculous even, the way all life is. It signifies imbalance, which is a fact of life, and at the same time holds the keys to restoring the balance, the keys, in effect, to its own demise. A month later, I had a second lobe of my lung removed. I was now missing two out of five. On the upside, I still had three left. Oncologists are nothing if not optimists, and mine assured me I could run a marathon on three loads. Our mountain expedition was no marathon, not as mountain expeditions go, but it was no cakewalk either. I was there to honor Thoreau, but more than that, I was there to see if I could climb a mountain again, and to be with my friends who climbed mountains, to share in that particular joy which is profound and endorphin-rich. Where the air is thin, the pleasure is commensurably fat. Somewhere there's an equation that describes this. (laughs) Long story short, I made it to the top along with ten others. Peak 12691 is no longer merely a number. I, for one, am happy to have a Mount Thoreau. Our modest expedition got me to read them again. It got me among friends and kindred spirits. It got me up and down another striking, quintessentially, Sierra peak, to the party afterwards, which was magical and boisterous and lasted two full days. All this happened a year and a half ago, but looking back, it seems like yesterday. Since the cancer, time has been a consistently inconsistent companion. Days fly by, nights frequently stretch on. More of both lately since learning that the cancer's back. Not in a single lobe this time, but all over. Thoreau was as reticent in talking about his impending death as he was in talking about what led to it. When he did, you have to admire his wit. In answer to the question, have you made your peace with God, he replied, I did not know we had ever quarreled. (laughs) And to a friend who was pestering him for a glimpse of what lay on the opposite shore, he replied, one world at a time. (laughs) He hardly talked at all about the literal process of dying itself. In my experience, there are roughly speaking two ways to go, fast and slow. There is something to be said for sudden death. Whatever suffering is to be had lasts at most a few seconds, presumably. After that, peace, presumably. No one really knows, of course. Not so much peace for everyone else. To the living, sudden death shatters the peace. It's like a body blow, but to the psyche. For some, the aftershock lasts years. In slow death, you get the shock first, when you get the news, cancer, metastatic, treatable but not curable, and maybe not even treatable. Now, for however long you have, do your best to get the most out of life, to enjoy yourself and be as decent and good and as true to yourself and loving of others, and of life in general, as possible. Be prepared to be surprised. At times, I've been so happy that I scarcely recognize myself. The value of a slow death lies in the opportunity to shed your skin and reinvent yourself, if needed, or to stick to your guns, if not. In either case, it's a good time to turn your lens on what's important and to sharpen the focus. Six weeks before his death, Thoreau wrote this. I suppose that I have not many months to live, but of course I know nothing about it. I may add that I am enjoying existence as much as ever and regret nothing. The other day I got up early, intending to begin the difficult process of sorting through a lifetime's worth of possessions. I'd filled up about half a box with books when the sun which was not quite up, hit the big puffy springtime clouds suspended above the Berkeley hills, which I could see out my window, setting them aglow then ablaze with gold and poppy-colored light. I had to stop and sit down. What I was seeing and feeling was too astonishing and spectacular to let pass unremarked. After the show was over, I found myself thinking about death, Not being dead, but the act of dying, the physical sensations I would have, and the mental, the cognitive experience during the last moments, the final transition between life and death. How interesting will that be, I thought. I shared this thought with my wife. You're curious, she said. It wasn't a question, but I answered anyway. Of course. Thank you.